Sovereign God is holy and his judgments are perfectly just. God is always on the throne, always righteous, and he makes righteous decisions. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel 7. As you know, we're in the series in Daniel 7, and this is a really unique chapter. John Wolveroid of Dallas Theological Seminary says that Daniel 7 is the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events to be found in the Old Testament. This chapter, Daniel 7, really details the lifelines of six world empires, six world empires. The first four of them are Gentile empires that are ruled by human beings. Empire number five is a satanic empire that he rules through his minion, the Antichrist. And lastly, we're going to see the final world kingdom, Messiah's eternal kingdom ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ, and it lasts forever. So we have four human kingdoms, one satanic kingdom, and then the kingdom of Christ. Here's our key idea for today's lesson. The central event in the universe is the return of King Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. The central event in the universe is the return of King Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. If you get this one right, you will get everything else right. If you don't get this one right, you miss the whole point. And we live in a culture, we live in a world that does not understand this and they are putting their hopes and dreams and life, literally, into things that are going to go poof, because when Christ returns, it's a game changer, because you have a new heavens and a new earth. Let's pick up the narrative in chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and relayed the following summary of it. Verse 2, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven were stirring the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. So this occurs about 15, 16, 17 years before the fall of Babylon that occurred in chapter 6. This occurs about 553 B.C. We know that because Belshazzar was made co-regent along with his father Nabonidus in 553. So Daniel gets this vision. Uh, and God reveals a panoramic view of the future, literally from the time of Daniel till Christ's second coming and the coronation of Jesus Christ. And that's called in the Bible the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles refer to the times when Israel and Jerusalem are under the domination of foreign Gentile world powers. And that time has already lasted more than 2,600 years. This took place about 553 and, of course, we're now at 2022. So we've, we've been in the times of the Gentiles for a couple of millennia at this point in time. And it will last until Christ returns. And that is an unknown period of time, but hopefully it's soon. So this is a parallel passage with Daniel 2. In Daniel 2, God had given Nebuchadnezzar a vision of a statue. And as you recall, this statue was made of four metals. It had a head of gold. Uh, arms and chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, iron legs, and then feet of and toes of iron plus clay. So it's interesting that chapter 2 of Daniel views human empires from a human standpoint. So when we as humans, we look at human empires, uh, whether they be the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire, that's the four metals. We think of these empires from our human perspective, and we think they're powerful, prestigious, 
noble, important, you know, these empires lasted all these centuries. Daniel 7 views those same world empires from God's perspective. How does God view human kingdoms? Well, he calls them beasts. Right? He doesn't view human empires as benevolent and beautiful. He views them as violent, brutal, ravenous, that destroy and devour each other. So human empires, from God's standpoint, are predators because they kill and enslave and destroy human life. So we view empires, whether it's the American Empire, the British Empire, as these noble entities. That's not God's point of view. He's actually got a completely different point of view. So this chapter really contrasts the empires of humans, run by humans, with the kingdom of God run by the Lord Jesus Christ. So you ask yourself, well, why would God give Daniel a series of visions, because we're now moving into the prophetic side of Daniel, the next six chapters are all prophecy, why would God tell Daniel what he's going to do in the future? Well, ultimately, prophecies are given for the benefit of God's people the saints of the Old Testament, and the saints in the New Testament. God gives Daniel a panoramic view of the future for at least a couple reasons. One, he wants to reassure his people that he's in control, and he'll keep his promises. He also gives a prediction of the future so that God's people everywhere know that God himself is speaking to them, right? See, only God can predict the future with 100% accuracy because only God can control the future with 100% control. Isaiah 46, 9, God is speaking and he's talking to the children of Israel. He says, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. How do we know that? Verse 10, he says, here's proof that I'm God. I declare the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Here's the principle. God's predictive prophecies prove that the Bible is supernatural and prepare his people for what's to come. God's predictive prophecies prove that the Bible is supernatural and prepare his people for what's to come. See, many, many people say, well, how do you know this is God's word? I mean, this is just a series of myths, right? A series of stories. It's oral tradition. It's history. No, the Bible is filled with prophecies. And prophecy is history written in advance. Prophecy is history written before it occurs. And only God can do that. Lots of people purport to predict the future. We've got all sorts of economic forecasters and religious swamis and gurus of all kinds that are going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. Now, God says... Here's the test of a true prophet. A true prophet, one that speaks for God, here's the test. 100% of their prophecies come true. Bar none. 100% accuracy or they don't come from God because God can predict the future precisely because he controls the future completely. Now, in the Old Testament, just for example, there are more than 300 prophecies regarding a coming Messiah. 300. If you pick just eight, eight out of 300, and you take a look at the chances that even eight of them would be fulfilled in one person, the chances are one in 10 followed by 17 zeros. That is a huge number. Let me give you a little idea how big that number is. If you take one in 10 times 17 zeros and you take that many silver dollars, you could cover the state of Texas in silver dollars two feet deep. That's a lot of silver dollars. Now, you take one silver dollar and you paint it red, and you throw it in the pile and you mix it all up, and you blindfold a person and you drop them in any place in Texas and have them go wandering all through the state of Texas looking for that one red silver dollar. The odds of them picking that red silver dollar up on the first try are 1 in 10 followed by 17 zeros. Physics calls that absurd, which means impossible, right? So we know the Bible is the word of God because it's filled with prophecies that have already occurred. And there's a whole bunch more about Christ's second coming 
that have yet to occur. We know the ones from the second coming are going to occur because we have evidence from the first coming. So in this vision, Daniel sees a great sea. He sees four winds and four beasts. Now, the great sea refers to the Mediterranean Sea. In the Old Testament, there's only a, a few seas. You've got the Sea of Galilee, the Red Sea, not the Dead Sea, and you've got the Mediterranean Sea. So this is the largest body of water known in that era. And in the Bible, when the word sea is used, especially a restless sea, it's often used as a reference to the nations, the nations, the people groups of the world. Matter of fact, the angel tells the apostle John in Revelation 17, 15, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the seas are in Scripture are often stormy, and that refers to nations often being in conflict and war, and the waves of the sea are often predictable, unpredictable. So human history is often uncertain from our standpoint. Human history is never uncertain from God's standpoint because he's in control of it. So Daniel sees this wind blowing on the surface. In the Bible, wind is often used as a metaphor for God's providential dealings in human affairs. So the invisible wind of God's will blows over the affairs of nation to accomplish his purposes. One of the things to remember, in God's kingdom, in God's world, there are no accidents. You never hear God saying, oops, I didn't see that one coming, ever. By the way, that's what you don't want to hear your dentist say either. If your dentist is drilling along and nothing and no pain and you go, this is not a problem, and then after about 30 seconds they say, I could have sworn that was a cavity. That you don't want to hear. You will never hear God say that because God always is on the throne and in control. So we have the seas, we have the wind, the will of God, and then out of the sea, Daniel sees four beasts. And these beasts are massive Monsters, they represent nations and empires. An angelic being told Daniel in, in verse 17, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. So these empires he's talking about are superpowers who rule over large territories, large sets of people groups. And each empire that he's going to discuss now, the four empires that he's going to talk about, human empires, they resemble animals. They have characteristics like the animals they're used to describe them. Verse 4, the first beast was like a lion, had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. So the first empire, which we're going to find out, is Babylon, which in chapter 2, remember, was the head of gold, the most precious metal of that era. So Babylon's portrayed as a lion, the king of beasts, and it has the wings of an eagle, the king of birds. Interesting, archaeology decades ago has discovered that the gates to the palace of Babylon were covered with statues of lions that had eagle's wings. And that was, that was their, their national, if you will, animal national bird. And the eagle's wings probably refers to the swiftness of Nebuchadnezzar's conquests. And these wings being plucked very likely refers to how God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, I took away his reason and, and allowed him to insanely imagine he was an animal. Remember, he's walking on the, on the ramparts of Babylon. He says, is this not the great city I have built? And God said, judgment is on you and you're going to be, have the mind of an animal. So he lost his mind, lived outdoors for seven years. And after he humbled himself, God restored him. We went through that a couple of weeks ago. So he was crawling on his hands and knees outdoors in one of the royal parks, and God says, here, he was stood up on his hind legs, on his two feet, like a human, and his reason returned to him. And that's the kingdom of Babylon. And in 539, as we discussed last week, Babylon was conquered by the Medes and Persians, October 12th, one night. Verse 5, Daniel says, and behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. The bear was the beast that represented the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, chapter 2 of Daniel refers to this empire as being the chest of silver. Remember, chest and arms of silver. 
In the Middle East, after the lion, the bear was the most feared predator. By the way, there was a lot fewer people back then. They used to have lions in Israel. They used to have bears too, but we've pretty well taken their habitat out, so that's not there anymore. Bears are not as agile as lions, if you've ever watched National Geographic, but they are brute force killing machines. Your average male lion probably weighs 400 to 450 pounds. Average grizzly on the light end is about 600, and they can go up to a half a ton, so they can get pretty big. This bear was raised up on one side, which is a, uh, remember this Medo-Persian Empire is a merger of two empires. The Median Empire, which predated the Persian Empire. At one point in time, the Median Empire was much larger than the Persian Empire until Cyrus shows up. Cyrus is the king of the Persians, and he literally made that empire by far the dominant part. So by the time Cyrus conquered Babylon, it was really the Persian Empire. The Medes were a part of it, but one side, obviously, this bear was far more dominant than the other side. And Daniel saw this bear has three ribs in its teeth, which speaks to this empire conquering other nations. At this point in time, the Medo-Persian Empire had already conquered Babylon, Egypt, and the nation of Lydia. The Persian Empire was much, much larger than the Babylonian Empire. And like a bear, this Persian Empire did not conquer by means of speed or intelligence. They just put more boots on the ground. I mean, they had massive, massive armies at that point. And apparently Daniel heard an angelic being, probably an angel, commanding this empire to go and devour much meat, which means to conquer many nations. If you use the bear metaphor, take it a little bit further, before hibernation, bears devour about 20,000 calories a day. That's not a weight loss program. You know, Jenny Craig would be disappointed. They're trying to put on weight because they're going to go on a fast for probably six months during the wintertime, so they're putting on a lot of weight. This Persian Empire conquered much more than the Babylonian Empire did, and it lasted for 200 years. Babylon lasted for a little over 100. Persia lasted for about 200 years. They were finally conquered by Alexander the Great between 334 and 332. It took them about two years of warfare before Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire. Verse 6, Empire number 3. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, the leopard, also known as a jaguar or a panther, is probably the most efficient predator in the cat kingdom, canine kingdom. It almost always attacks from ambush, and its uh, success ratio is extraordinarily high. They stalk their prey and attack from ambush. Male leopards usually weigh in between 85 and 170 pounds, and they're some of the most successful predators in the world. They're very swift, they're very smart, and jaguars, among all the cats, can live almost anywhere. The snow leopards in the Himalayas at 15,000 feet, they live in the jungles of South America, they live in the savannas of Africa, they live in India. The jaguar is the most ubiquitous of all of the big cats, and it represents the Greek Empire, specifically under Alexander the Great. In chapter 2, remember, this was the belly and uh, thighs of bronze on the statue, and they had four wings, obviously, which referred to the speed of their conquest. Alexander was a brilliant general. He conquered all the way from Europe to India in less than 10 years. Less than 10 years, he conquered virtually all the known world. He died at age 33 from alcohol poisoning, died in Babylon after a party one night, and his empire was divided up among four generals. Remember they talked about this thing having four heads? Well, there were four generals that took over Alexander's empire after he died. Cassander took Greece and Macedonia. Lysimachus ruled over Thrace and Asia Minor, which is Turkey. He took the north. Seleucius took Syria and the Middle East, and Ptolemy got Palestine and Egypt. So there are four generals that received the empire after Alexander died. It only took him 22 years of murder and intrigue before all this empire thing got settled. So if you think politics are nasty now, no, back today we unelect you, back then they just executed you or poisoned you or whatever. You know, we, they knew how to get rid of their enemies at that point. So this empire, the Greek empire, was overthrown really by Rome. They won the Battle of Corinth in 146 and they annexed all of Greece afterwards. It's fascinating. I want you to notice one little phrase here. 
At the end of verse 6, it says, And dominion was given to it. The key idea of the entire book of Daniel is found in Daniel 4.32, and it says the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So political people that are in power and think they're in power are delusional. You are given everything in life for a period of time. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. God entrusts it to you for a period of time. And obviously, as you can see, he moves power from empire to empire. There's no empire that lasts forever. And that will be obviously very important for us to remember. So dominion or power, political authority, military might, the life cycle of empires is derived from God according to his purposes. Verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, this beast clearly doesn't correspond to any animal because iron teeth are not found in any animal at that point. Daniel says this animal is vicious and ferocious, and destroys everything on its path. And God gave John, the Apostle John, a revelation of this fourth beast in Revelation 13.1. John says, Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, parallel passage, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horn were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like that of a lion. So John describes this beast, this fourth beast, as being a composite of the previous three, right? Leopard-like body, bear-like feet, lion-like mouth. So some of the characteristics of each of the prior empire were carried over into this fourth empire. And this fourth beast is commonly referred to as the Roman Empire. It was as strong and enduring as iron. Daniel chapter 2 tells us it had iron legs, the Roman legions trampled everything in their path, subjugated people. Most of these other empires lasted between 100 and 200 years. Rome lasted centuries. The Roman Republic began in 509 BC, and it ended with the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC. He was going to be dictator for life, and so the fellow senators had him stabbed, which is you know, a, a sure way of uh, ensuring a change of control. Um, after years of warfare, his nephew, Julius Caesar's nephew, Octavian, became the first emperor in 27 BC. We know him as Caesar Augustus, and he's the one who told everybody to go to their city of origin and be taxed. And Caesar Augustus is the reason why Jesus was born in Bethlehem and not Nazareth, right? So that's the origins of the Roman Empire. The western half of the Roman Empire fell in 476. The eastern half lasted till 1453, so we're talking centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries. Now, John says, and Daniel says, this fourth empire is different than the other three. Well, here's what made it different. It was an imperial empire. The Babylonian, Persian, and Greek empires, when they conquered you, they let your local leaders run things. So if you were conquered by a Greek empire, Alexander the Great, and you had a politician or a king or a governor, he'd let the governor stay in there and run things on, on their behalf. All you really had to do is remain loyal and pay your taxes. Now, that worked for the three empires. Rome, different ballgame. Everywhere Rome conquered, they sent Romans to run things. And you did it their way or you died. Interesting, Arnold Fruchtenbaum who wrote the Footsteps of the Messiah, suggests that calling the fourth beast the Roman Empire is inaccurate since it, it ceased to exist in 1453. He calls this fourth empire the imperialistic empire. The imperialistic empire. So I want you to think about this. We have the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks. We have what's traditionally called the Roman Empire, which lived had a life cycle from 500 B.C. to about 1400 A.D., he calls this the imperialistic empire, and he says, and I believe rightly so, that we're still in that phase right now. 
So this fourth beast, this imperial empire, has five stages, and I'll walk you through them. The United stage, the two-division stage, the one-world government stage, the ten-division stage, and the Antichrist stage. You don't have to remember that because I'm going to go back to it. So the first stage of this imperialistic empire, the fourth empire, is the United stage, and that's the Roman Empire until 364. And in 364, Rome was divided in two. The Roman Empire was split into two halves in 364. The western half was Rome. The eastern half was Constantinople. So that was the division, the two-division stage of the Roman Empire. right? And we have had ongoing conflicts between east and west in Europe for centuries and centuries and centuries. There's been Russia and Islam in the east, and there's been the Western democracies and the Western monarchies, and there's been treaties and wars and conflicts for centuries and centuries and centuries over maintaining a balance of power. Now, that's the first two phases of this last empire. The next three stages of this empire are all future. We're headed toward them now. The third stage is one world government. And that's the direction we're headed right now. The Bible clearly tells us that at some point, the balance of power between individual nations and alliances will break down, and we will have one world government. Look at verse 23 of chapter 7. The angel told Daniel in verse 23, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. So this one world government is going to be imperialistic and dictatorial, and it will impose its force on people uh, by fear and terror. It will literally be a new world order of global government, and all resistance will be crushed. But even that is not the final stage. This one world government is going to divide into ten kingdoms. Look at verse 24, Daniel 7, 24. As for the ten horns, which Daniel saw, out of this one kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous one and will subdue three kings. So I'm talking now about the fourth phase of this empire. We had the united phase, the two-division stage, which we're in now. We have the one-world government phase, which we're headed toward, and in that one-world government phase, we're going to have ten divisions. We're going to have ten horns, if you will. In Scripture, horns always refer to power, authority, kingdoms, government, etc., etc. So at some point, this one-world government's going to have ten divisions. It seems likely, as a matter of fact, the Club of Rome has already made a recommendation that when global government does arise, that we have ten administrative districts on planet Earth. So you divide this global government into 10 districts, and it's all ruled from a central world government. And from that 10-division stage, Antichrist is going to rise to power. Look at verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, these 10 divisions, these 10 kingdoms, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first 10 horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So now we're on the fifth and final stage of this imperial empire, and it is what we call the Antichrist stage. Or, for lack of a better word, the Satanic stage. Now this kingdom is different from all that came before. It's clear that God is now describing a person because he says this little horn, this kingdom, this power, this king has eyes like a man, and a mouth that speaks great boasts. It says he starts small, but this Antichrist has political and military genius. He's going to be growing in power and authority. He's going to be controlled by Satan, which is the source of his power. And at some point, Antichrist is going to go strong enough, he's going to overthrow ten of these administrative districts and take them over. And the other seven will submit to his authority, which makes him the de facto ruler of planet Earth. When we went through Revelation... Revelation 13 to 19, six chapters, really covers the kingdom of the Antichrist. So let me back up and give you a high-level overview. We have four kingdoms ruled by humans. Babylon, Persia, Greece, early Rome. 
All of those are by kingdoms, human kingdoms. We go through the United stage of Rome, the two division stage where we are now, all human rule, right? Then we get to the one world government stage, still human rule. Then we get to the ten administrative districts, still human rule. Now we come to satanic rule. The Antichrist is controlled by Satan because he's filled by Satan. He's called the man of sin. And this Antichrist in the Greek is not just against Christ. It also means a counterfeit Christ. So Antichrist is not just against Christ. He's a pseudo-Christ. He's going to portray himself as the Messiah and be worshipped as the Messiah. Verse 21. Daniel 7, 21. Daniel says, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Verse 25. He, Antichrist, will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Jump back to verse 11. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning fire. Here's the principle. In his infinite wisdom, God allows evil to succeed for a time. But in his perfect time, God will destroy all evil. In his infinite wisdom, God allows evil to succeed for a time. But in his perfect time, God will destroy all evil. Now we know from Revelation and from Daniel that Antichrist is going to rule over planet Earth for three and a half years. Time means a year. Times mean two years. Half a time means half a year. One year plus two years plus half a year is three and a half years. So that's the last half of the seven-year uh, tribulation. We do know that Satan will control Antichrist and will enable them to perform many signs and wonders. This guy is going to be the most spectacular orator, the most persuasive speaker. He's going to be a political and military genius. It's going to speak against God. He's going to be filled with pride. He's going to persuade the world to follow him. And Revelation ultimately tells us he's going to force everyone to worship him under penalty of death. God's people will refuse to worship him. And as a result, they will be killed by him. Notice what it says. It says, the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering the saints. Keep looking up. It says, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. That sounds like protracted conflict, yes? I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but if you thought Joel was tough, get your boots on right? It's going to get better. The king is coming, but between now and then it's going to get worse. This Antichrist, his rebellion against God is so extreme that he's literally going to change the laws and even is going to apply and change the calendar. I expect it won't be B.C. before Christ and A.D. Anno Domini. I think it's going to be all about him. The calendar is going to be based on when I took power. This guy is the worst of the egomaniacs. In God's perfect time, however, he's going to be judged in God's courtroom. He's going to be seized and thrown alive in the lake of fire. So we have the four kingdoms of man. We have the one kingdom of Satan who will rule over planet Earth. God's going to allow Antichrist to exercise dominion over planet Earth for a predetermined period of time. But it's limited. Because the main event is the coming kingdom of God. Look at verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Verse 10. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads of myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. Here's the principle. Sovereign God is holy, and his judgments are perfectly just. 
Sovereign God is holy, and his judgments are perfectly just. It says thrones were set up, and the Aramaic literally means thrones were cast down, and that's caused people a lot of trouble. You have to remember, back in the Middle East and in India, when a pasha or a king went someplace and they wanted to sit down, they would throw pillows on the ground. Lots of pillows, right? And the king sat down. Wherever the king wanted to sit, they would throw pillows down, so they would throw down the throne, cast down the throne. That was the pillows they sat on at that point in time. And this term, the Ancient of Days, it's referring to God the Father. And it literally means the Old One. So y'all are in good company, right? Yeah, look at how your grandchildren see you. Yes, the Old One is coming in the room, right? So it's a reference to the eternality of God, the infinite wisdom of God who's working out his eternal plans. And it says, God took his seat. You will never see God the Father in Scripture except sitting on his throne. That's everywhere you see God the Father. He is always seated, perfectly in control of everything. You see Satan run around trying to stir up trouble. The Father is on the throne, perfectly in control, and being worshipped. You see the Son working, you see the Spirit working, but the Father is seated. Right? And this is a direct parallel with Revelation 4 and 5. You want to mark that down. In Revelation 4 and 5, heaven is worshiping God on his throne. And the earth is being ruled by Antichrist. Now that's a contrast. The earth's ruled by Antichrist, and the host of heaven is worshiping God, the Father, on the throne, sovereignly in control. And notice that they're using very human terms to describe the Father. Now we know the Father is a spirit. He doesn't have white hair. He doesn't wear clothing, but we describe him using human anthropomorphic terms so we get it. It says he's pure, like blinding light, like, you know, noonday sun on, on snow. It indicates moral perfection. White is always an indication of moral perfection. His hair is like pure wool. It says his throne is like fire, literally, and rivers of fire flow from his throne. Fire is always a symbol of God's holiness and judgment. It says he's surrounded by tens of thousands who worship him. And the end of verse 10 indicates this is a courtroom scene because it says, God the Father is seated as his judge and the books were open. Man, I'd like to do a sermon on the books because everything in your life and my life is written down in the books. God remembers everything. Everything. Here's the good news. If you know him, there is a big blood cross on your book that says, paid for by the blood of Jesus. Right? You better be grateful for that. God does not suffer from loss of memory. He's the only one who can choose to forget because of the blood of the Son. Verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And this is the central event of this chapter, contrasting the kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God. Here's the principle. When he returns, King Jesus will rule over planet Earth and everyone will honor and obey him forever. When he returns, King Jesus will rule over planet Earth and everyone will honor and obey him forever. Now, it says he's coming with the clouds of heaven. Anytime you see clouds in Scripture, they usually refer to deity. They usually refer to divinity. Matthew 24, 30 says that Jesus is going to what? come back on the clouds of heaven. He ascended into the heavens and a cloud received him out of their sight. He's going to come back in the same way. It's interesting that Daniel describes Jesus with the term son of man. That refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. The term son of man appears 82 times in the Gospels. It's Jesus' favorite term for himself. He always describes himself as the son of man. You know why? 
He's telling the nation of Israel in the Gospels, I'm the one. I'm the one that Daniel predicted. I'm the one who's coming. I'm the one who owns and rules and going to reign over planet Earth. Daniel called me the son of man. I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy. And the nation of Israel didn't believe it. So Revelation 4 and 5, a parallel passage, have the whole description of Jesus the Son coming to God the Father and God the Father giving him the sealed scroll. And that is the title deed to planet Earth. The title deed to planet Earth, which was given up when Adam and Eve, of course, sinned. A title deed, you you own a home, you have a title deed, you have a pink slip on your car, that's a title deed. It says, I own this item. I have ownership rights, I have control rights, I have rulership rights. When the title deed to earth changes hands, it goes from Satan's control back to its owner, the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that had been under the authority of Satan since the Garden of Eden comes back under the authority of Jesus Christ. This is the central event in the universe. And one of the most relevant passages, if you've ever sung Handel's Messiah, you get this next passage, Revelation eleven fifteen, says, the kingdom of the world, talking under Satan's rule, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So this coronation, this reign of King Jesus, is the central event in all of human history. The messianic kingdom is foretold throughout the Old Testament. It's a central event. It's the eternal event. Remember God told David, he said, one of your descendants is going to sit on your throne and their kingdom will have no end. That's this kingdom. So we look at these four human kingdoms and the satanic or antichrist kingdom and we look, man, human beings are a mess. Yes, they're beasts. That's why Daniel saw a beast. But what's coming is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that begs the question, so what is that kingdom going to be like? Well, he gives us some descriptions. Number one, he says he's going to have dominion. Jesus Christ will have dominion. And dominion means absolute authority. It means a theocracy, and his name is Theo. Theo means God, by the way, just in case you were wondering. It is a rule by God. And in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes back, also known as the millennial kingdom, you won't have any voting. You won't worry about pregnant chads. You won't worry about ballot boxes. You won't worry about election laws. You won't worry about divided government. You won't worry about Congress. It will be a perfect monarchy. You only have one person in control, the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to look at it? Look at Psalm 2. People will still rebel during the Messianic kingdom because they still have a sin nature. Scripture says in Psalm 2, I'm going to rule them with a rod of iron, which means there's not going to be any insurrection. There's not going to be any mutiny. There'll be no rebellion against King Jesus. He's the perfect monarch, verse 27 of Daniel 7. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His, Christ's kingdom, will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So every human being is going to serve King Jesus. His rule is going to be absolute and perfect. Jesus told us that in Matthew 28. What did he say just before he left? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So dominion's number one. Number two is glory. Glory means honor in this case. So the hearts of people will not only submit to Christ's rule, they will want to honor him and value his rule. Number three, it's going to be a kingdom. People say, well, Christ rules in our hearts. He does. But this kingdom is not only a spiritual kingdom where he rules in your hearts, it's a physical kingdom on planet earth And King Jesus will rule from Jerusalem, and that will be the capital of planet Earth. 
It's a literal physical kingdom, and it will last a thousand years. Revelation 20 calls it the millennium. We call it the millennium because it's a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. The prophets are filled with references to that. Jesus will demonstrate what his original intention was for planet earth before sin. We literally are going back to the Garden of Eden. I know we can't imagine that. It's impossible almost for us to wrap our mind around what this universe was like before sin because this is all we know. Everything here is broken. Everything here is bent. Everything is twisted. Before sin, everything worked perfectly. You didn't need to repair anything because it never broke. How about that? You didn't need any doctors or nurses or mechanics or marriage counselors or yeah, none of that stuff, right? So we have a kingdom. Number four, the scope of this kingdom is universal. All people, all nations, all language groups will serve him. He's going to reverse the curse of sin in the millennial kingdom. He's going to begin to do that. Isaiah tells us the earth is going to flourish, plants are going to thrive, the lamb is going to play with the wolf. It says the children will play near the cobra's den. Now clearly, nature is changed when a little baby can play near a cobra's den. You obviously have poisonous snakes given a new nature at that point. So that's the nature of what's going to happen beyond our comprehension, but written down to give us knowledge of what God's plans are. And the kingdom of God is going to be for the saints of God. Verse 18. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom, possess the kingdom forever for all the ages to come. So it's an interesting question. Who are the saints? A saint is anyone redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Old Testament or New Testament, doesn't matter. If you've exercised faith in the promises of God, you'll be in this kingdom. And the last one is duration. How long does this kingdom last? Well, we know the millennial kingdom lasts for a thousand years. The eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's been given all authority in heaven and earth, will last forever. So the really thing to understand is the day is coming when everything will change and it will happen like that. So we who are alive today need to understand that every the kingdoms of this world, the four kingdoms of humans, the one satanic kingdom are temporary. They're passing away. They're dysfunctional. They're beasts, and we're living in that realm now, but it's not going to be forever. So we need to live our lives every day in light of the reality that the king is coming back and will establish his kingdom, and you are part of that kingdom, and you will rule and reign with him because he's promised that, and when he returns, he changes everything. Everything this world counts on, political power, control over the military, natural resources, Influence, whatever it happens to be, it's going to mean nothing when the king comes back. Because when he comes back, he takes over, right? And so we, we have been given this wonderful panoramic passage, number one, to demonstrate that God's word is supernatural. It's true because he's made predictions and he's made them come true in the past, so we know that these are coming true in the future. So number one, his word is supernatural. And number two, it's to give us confidence that he is in control. It's terribly easy to look at the world today and say, this thing is out of control. It is stuck on stupid. When you look at decisions that people in power are making, you absolutely want to tear your hair out. Tear their hair out. No, you tear their heads off. That's what you want to do. You can't believe what kind of stupid is coming out of their mouth. Both parties. Stupid is ubiquitous, right? That's what happens when you refuse to come under the authority of God and he can give you the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to guide your decisions. So we live in that kind of a world and he gives us this panorama to say, I want you to remember... I own this place, and I'm coming back. And when I come back and take over, everything's going to change. And you need to read and understand, and our hope is in that. So we need to live in light of that eternity. Okay.
We're going to move on. I'm going to give you a summary. By the way, we have the next five or six or however long it takes us to get through this, but we're going to dive a lot deeper into these. This is just the overview chapter, okay? So our key idea, and then we'll do prayer and praise, the central event of the universe is the return of King Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. Number two, God's predictive prophecies, and they're throughout the Bible, prove that the Bible is supernatural in its origin, and it prepares us, his people, for what is to come. So when you see things coming about, don't get scared. God's already told you what's going to happen. You know the end of the story, so you can rejoice. Number three, in his infinite wisdom, God allows evil to succeed for a time. But in his perfect time, God will destroy all evil. Evil is temporary. Number four, sovereign God is holy and his judgments are perfectly just. God is always on the throne, always righteous, and he makes righteous decisions. And lastly, when he returns, King Jesus will rule over planet Earth and everyone will honor him and obey him forever. So we should, in spite of the craziness of our current world, move forward with great confidence. You serve the King of Kings and he knows your name. And he has work for you to do on planet Earth before he returns. Got it? Get on with it. I love you guys. Now that you know. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.